0: Welcome to the Hanover Valley Podcast, a ministry of Hanover Valley Presbyterian Church. We are located at 133 Carlisle Street in downtown Hanover, Pennsylvania. Check out the rest of our website at hanovervalley.org. Thank you for listening. The uh, By an author, we don't know who it was. It's, it's the only book where it's a, we're uncertain as to who wrote the book, uh, but written back with the idea of saying, answering the question, when you read the book, you kind of get a sense of what question he's asking, he's answering by the answer that he's giving. And the, the question that, that, you know, a way of summarizing the question that he's trying to answer is, if God is so good and his love is, and grace are so great, why is my life so hard? That's the resp- That's the way it ought to be. That's the way, that's the answer. I mean, we ought to laugh at that. That when, that, that, and it's a question that isn't just the question of these people back 2000 years ago i still have this question right now i i ask it most weeks And I sit in your living rooms and I drive around and I talk to you in your small groups and I talk to you on the phone and in your texts. And you have the same question, too. You may not ask it the same way. You may not understand or, you know, or, or understand that you're asking it this way. But everybody's asking the same question. God, if you're so good, if your grace is so great, if your love is so powerful, why in the heck is the world in the condition it's in? Why is it so hard? Why am I suffering? Why is this so difficult? Isn't it, supposed to be, isn't it supposed to be easier? How do I keep on moving in the same direction that you want me to go? How do I keep trusting in, in you? How do I keep, keep doing this hard thing on and on and on and on? And the writer of Hebrews says, here's how. And he spends all these chapters telling us, telling us in various ways, here's how. Because that's the world we have. That's the condition we're in. We're in a broken world. We're living in this place of the greatness of God's grace, transforming the the immense, horrific nature of our sin, progressively changing it until we get to the place where God, where Jesus comes back and, and fixes it completely. And he began that process. He began that process from the Garden of Eden. And then major process changed. Everything changed at the cross, and it's going to, and everything's going to change again when he comes back. There's going to be tectonic change at the cross. We found power, forgiveness, the power of God's grace, and all, and we're going to talk about that this morning a little bit at the cross. Tectonic change happened at, at that moment when Jesus came the first time. When Jesus comes the second time, the tectonic change that's going to occur in this world, in the lives of His people, is going to be unimaginable. And the writers of, the writers of Scripture are stymied. They're, they stumble upon their words to know how to tell you and me what's going to happen when Jesus comes back. It takes poetry to get to this place. That's why God gave us poetry. That's why God... Write, you know, let's, there's some way, when you love a woman, you, some, you can tell her, but when you sing the song, it's a whole other animal, right? Sometimes music and poetry just gets at it better and, and describes it more than just saying it. And the writers of Scripture are the same way, that something's going to happen, that the tectonic change that's going to occur when Jesus gets back, when Jesus comes back... At, his, at the right proper moment, that, that at his second coming, the transformation that's going to occur in the heart and in the world and in lives is going to be so amazing. Uh, poets, we need poets to tell this story. And that's why the writer of Psalms goes into it. And the writer of, of Isaiah, who is a great poet, did that. David was a songwriter, writing songs about what's going to take place. And even those writers and those poets and those, and those dreamers of dreams that the Scriptures talk about in the pages of Scripture, even they are writing about the cross in ways to help us understand the tectonic change that occurred at the cross. You and I don't even get that. You, don't, you and I don't even understand the power of what happened at the cross in a daily, everyday way. And the writer of Hebrews is saying, let me write you some poetry well, let me tell you a little bit about what happened at the cross that's going to give you the captivating energy, the captivating emotional force to drive you forward to that other tectonic change that's going to happen when Jesus comes back. And so he writes it in, in chapter 4, starting at verse 14. I'm going to read verse 14 through the next chapter, verse 10, if you would follow along with me. Hebrews 4, 14. Therefore, since we have a great high priest who has gone through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold firmly to the faith we profess. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses. But we have one who has been tempted in every way, just as we are, yet was without sin. Let us then approach the throne of grace with confidence so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. Every priest is selected from among men and is appointed to represent them in matters related to God, to offer gifts and sacrifices for sins. He is able to deal gently with those who are ignorant and are going astray since he himself is subject to weakness. This is why he has to offer sacrifices for his own sins as well as for the sins of the people. No one takes up this honor upon himself. He must be called by God, just as Aaron was. So Christ also did not take upon himself the glory of becoming a high priest, but God said to him, you are my son, today I have become your father. And he, and he says it in another place, You are a priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. During the days of Jesus' life on earth, he offered up prayers, petitions, with loud cries and tears to the one who could save him from death. And he was heard because of his reverent submission. Although he was a son, he learned obedience from what he suffered. And once made perfect, he became the source of eternal salvation for all who obey him and was designated by God to be high priest in the order of Melchizedek. This is God's word. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of God will stand forever. Let's pray. Father, I pray that you would be with us this morning. Be with us. Help us to hear you. Lord, we're, we're used to hearing one voice. One voice broken up into many voices in our head, and that, and, and that is the voice of my own thinking, the voice of my own understanding, the voice of my own sinful processing. Lord, I am so used to hearing that voice. We are so used to hearing that voice that your voice seems tireless, seems irrelevant, seems small, seems inconsequential. But your voice is the only transformative voice. Your voice made the world. Your voice, by the power of your voice, you spoke into existence by your voice everything that exists. And by your voice, you are changing us through your word who is a reference of the word, Jesus Christ, our great high priest. Lord, speak to our hearts today and change us into the people you desire. For it's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. There's a complicated phrase that I run into on a regular basis when I care for people. And, and this complicated phrase comes to me directly, comes at me directly when I'm in relationship with people, but more, than, more often than not, it's a complicated phrase that I hear spoken amongst people in the world and in, in our lives. And that complicated phrase is, you've never been through it, so you don't understand. You can't understand what I'm going through because you've never been where I am. And the reason I call that a complicated phrase is because whenever, and and maybe here's a clue in, whenever I talk to people privately or when I talk from the pulpit and I ever use the word, and whenever I use the word complicated something, what I generally mean by that is that there's good things in it and there's bad things in it. And the reason it's complicated is because we're having, to, we're having to embrace the truth of what's there, but we also have to negate what's false there. And sometimes we don't understand the truths and the lies in the midst of a complicated experience. And, the, and, and, there's, and what, what, uh, what sociologists and what psychologists call that, con- that complication is that things are nuanced. The phrase, the concept, you can't understand what I'm going through, because you don't, you've never been through it. That complicated phrase, it has both truth and lie in the middle of it. And the truth of it is that, yes, absolutely, I cannot accurately empathize, understand, engage, or sympathize with your struggle because, uh, uh, because I don't understand nor have I gone through the exact details of your experience. I have not walked in the very shoes you have walked at the very moment you have walked them in the, in the surrounding circumstances of the ways that you've walked. That is absolutely true. But it is absolutely, the part of it that's absolutely false is that often that statement is given in order to push relationship away, is to put up a wall of of hindrance, is to say, because you can't have my exact experience, because you haven't been through my exact understanding, because you haven't endured what I've endured in this moment. You can't know me, love me, care for me, engage with me. That's the falsehood. The falsehood that's being pushed in that statement is that because I have not followed the exact path you are on, I therefore don't have the right or ability to engage, love, or experience with you or sympathize in some fashion. Therefore, a wall goes up. The truth of the matter is, nobody, if that, if that, if that were true, then nobody can care for anybody about anything. If it were true that in order for you to, to be able to love and care and support and 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 understand and draw me out of, of a hardness that I'm in. If, if it were if it were true that in order for you to do that, you have to walk down the same exact path in the same exact way with the same exact circumstances and, and surroundings and surroundings uh, um, aspects. There's absolute that if that were true, then nobody can care for anybody in any with anything. Because nobody, there's nobody, there's nobody in this world that can have that same exact experience as I've had. There's no way that you can walk down the same path I've been on at the same time, at the same age, with the same background, with the same, with the same ideas and surrounding circumstances. There's no way because we're radically unique people with radically unique experiences and gloriously radically unique. Gloriously, amazingly, beautifully unique. That's what Jesus made us. But if it were true that I have to have the same the same minute, specific experience in order to be able to care for you, then nobody gets to care for anybody about anything. But, but what this passage tells me is that by the power of His grace, there is one out of this world who has walked every experience in every way, specifically, and understands the intricacies of what everybody's going through. And He is the only one who can help. And because He is the one who has walked down the exact experience with me, in me, a part of me, while I'm going through it, with in, in that so simultaneously as I'm going through it and experiencing Jesus, the high priest, is in me experiencing it as a child of God at the same moment with the same experiences, given me the same background, experiencing the same background, and has felt it more deeply and more intimately than I have felt, and therefore I can trust him to guide me through it, but it also allows me to let people in. It allows me to realize the reality that no other human being can embrace that level of struggle with you, but Jesus can, and I don't need you to, because Jesus is and can, and I don't need you to. I don't need you to be for me what Jesus can only be for me, and so therefore, I can have you be in my life, and I can be in yours, and we can engage this struggle together, and I can can sense your sympathy, and although you haven't been through my level of suffering or my level of hardship or wa- or whatever specific things there are you have been through suffering you do know what it is and the strain of it and you have stumbled forward because you don't, there's no there's no you don't walk inside you don't walk through suffering you don't walk through suffering you stumble through suffering. And, and, and what I'm discovering is, I, don't th- I really don't think you walk through life. I think you stumble through life. And all this, all this internal, all this internal um, information that tells me, stand up straight, walk forward. I should be this. I should do that. I should not. And it is is a lie. We're broken people, and we're stumbling stumbling through most everything else which is why I say I say that when I have Christ who understands the depth the intimacy the exactness of my suffering which it says here we don't have a high priest who can not understand that who can't sympathize with our weaknesses number 1 the thing the thing about this passage is telling us is that we're weak people. Hebrews says you're weak. Weaknesses. We got weaknesses. Yes, you're weak. You're not strong. You're weak. You're broken. You're a mess in need of mercy. What does he say? This is, in the, this is in the beginning. We do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weakness, but we have the one who has been tempted in every way except without sin that we might approach the throne of grace with confidence. In other words, if because of Jesus, we can have confidence. Generally, you don't have confidence in yourself. Generally, you don't approach the throne of grace with boldness. That's what he's saying. I don't approach it with boldness. How do I approach it with boldness? Through Christ. How do I have confidence? Through Christ so that I can receive mercy and grace. I need mercy. I'm a a mess. I need the mercy of God. I need the grace of God. I got nothing. This This is showing us the condition of the human experience. This is showing us the condition of the human heart and that you need something outside of yourself in order to change you and that you have a high priest who can sympathize with all that. He understands the intricacies, and because he understands the intricacies, I can let people into my life. I can let them, and I can, I can be in their life, and they can be in mine. And back when, when we lost my grandson, the most tectonic shift in hardship I have ever experienced, and you all were with me when we went through it. And I would sit in small groups with college students, and I would share this experience because it was the it was the most visceral pain I'd ever been through. It was the most complicated pain, still the most complicated pain I have ever been through, and the, and the most unanswerable loss I have ever experienced. Uh, it was, it was, you know, it, It was a class, I was in a class at the 400, 500, 600 level. I didn't know the answer to this calculus. I didn't have the formula for this chemistry. And I'm sitting in a group with college students, and I'm sharing this experience, and they would say, this is one of the first things one of the college students said was, well, I can understand that I lost, I lost my girlfriend back over the summer. Now some of you hear that, And you go, what a hurtful thing to say to compare the loss of a child at birth to the loss of a girlfriend in college. And I say, yay. I say, nay. Nay. Listen to this. Listen to this suffering. Listen to, because what I heard from him saying is, I can do, I can do algebra. And you're doing calculus. Calculus. And maybe some of my algebra can help you figure out your calculus. And I was wrapped in his story. I was deeply moved by that. And I was drawn into his suffering. Because he was trying to find a point of connection to me. He was trying to say through his love and through the power of grace in his life, I found Jesus to help me with my suffering. Maybe you can find Jesus to help you with your suffering at this moment. And I was wrapped I wasn't insulted. I was was engaged because Jesus gave me him. Jesus gave me his, his algebra to help me with my calculus. I'm undone by the love of that. This is the Savior. The writer of Hebrews says, that we don't have a high priest who can't understand that, who can't understand brokenness. We don't have a high priest. You know, the capricious gods of the Greeks, the whimsical gods of false religions, they don't sympathize. They demand. They demand. The capricious gods of the Greeks and and the... And the the false gods of false religions, they don't deal with hardship and difficulty and the brokenness of our world. They simply demand do better, do more. Do it faster, and it will change. They don't sympathize. They don't, because they can't sympathize. And ultimately, they don't exist, so they have nothing to, to sympathize or exist or understand. Jesus, who exists, the God who is, tells us that His Son was a sympathizer. Who, who understood weakness. Who actually, the very essence of His, of his incarnation was a display of weakness. Philippians tells us that, that the glory of God, the, the immensity of his glorious grace, the immensity of his perfection and beauty, the immensity of his, of his transcendence and holiness, he constrained down into a manger. The weakest, most vulnerable creature we have on the earth. God became that. And not just that, grew in hardship. What, th- he was God's son in the manger, right? This, do you see the imagery that the writer said? He was, the, he was God's son in the manger. He was all that the son is in the manger. He was everything of God himself in the manger. And yet, and yet all perfection, all beauty, all righteousness, all the atoning salvation right there. And yet, it says he had to learn something. What did he say? that he had to learn, verse 8, although he was the son... He learned obedience from what he suffered, and once, was ma- and once he became perfect, he became the source of eternal salvation. In other words, in order to be the son he needed to be, in order to attain the perfection that he needed to attain, in order to become the nature of our salvation, in order to, in order to be the, the righteousness and the beauty of God that he intended to become and the transformer of culture, to make the tectonic change that that occurred, he had to learn something about it. He had to learn about humanity. And how did he have to learn? What was the school in which he learned it. Suffering. Suffering. And not suffering like you and I undergo. You and I are used to it. We're born into it. Our families were born into it. For millennia we've been born into it. The DNA out of which we are made and that we grow is a, is a DNA of suffering, of hardship, of brokenness, of fear, of darkness, of anger, of sin, Every, all of that. We are born with it. It is our very nature. We, we are, we are it, it is the playground in which we play and build and grow and do all that we do. It was his playground. What was his playground? Light, righteousness, transcendence, holiness, beauty. The holiness of heaven, the transcendence of being, the creator, sustainer, Lord of all things, that was his world. That was the world. He wasn't born into it. It was the world he eternally existed in. And that eternal creature, that eternal creator, not creature, that eternal creator who is Christ, for eternity, has existed in this holy union, this this beautiful love, this amazing community of Father, Son, and Spirit, without blemish, without fear, without, without loss of light or beauty. Of his own desire, surrendered himself to a life of suffering. To put on that darkness, to put on that frailty, Was there a day Jesus did not open his eyes and his heart was gripped with pain with what he saw? Was there not a day that when Jesus opened his eyes, all he saw was brokenness all he saw was how this wasn't the way he made the world was there a day that when Je- that jesus opened his ears and did not hear the cries of of suffering that did not that he did not hear the painful thrashing of sin against the order of his father was there a day that jesus did not experience every moment that he walked on this earth that he did not feel in the pain and suffering of the people not just its pain but the but the betrayal of his of his children, that he gave the grace of God in the garden and the betrayal and brokenness of that. And yet, every day in the midst of this searing betrayal and pain that his eyes were exposed to, his ears were experiencing, his his touch was experiencing, it says that he offered prayers in tears for himself and for you. He sympathized. He saw beyond your betrayal to your brokenness. He saw he was he was conscious enough as a savior, as a sympathizer, as a priest to see beyond to see beyond the the hurt the hurt that he might have been experiencing See, beyond that, to the hurt that you and I were experiencing. That comes out in betrayal, it comes out in sin, it comes out in in horrible, conflicting ways. And yet the sympathizing Savior. He gets our weakness, he understands it and he and he realizes it needs to be it needs to be fixed, it needs to be it needs to be given grace. To change. And yet, his solution for that problem wasn't to demand change, but was to take the suffering into himself. To become the sinner. To become the betrayer. To become become the brokenness himself. At the cross. The tectonic thing that was happening there was that Jesus was absorbing and and receiving and becoming the very, the very betrayal, brokenness, and sin that you and I are as we trust in Jesus. That his solution for the problem wasn't to demand change, but was to take the problem into himself and and absorb it, and give back the power, the power, the power of what? Well, what does the writer tell us? Verse 16, that because we have a high priest who has taken our sins into himself, who has sympathized with our weaknesses, tempted in every way, but was without sin. All of that sin, all of that brokenness, all of that, all of that betrayal that we were responsible for, he took into himself and yet did not sin. Because of that, what do we get? What is he getting us to? What does he want for us? What is he trying to move us towards? Let us approach the throne of grace with confidence. We can go to God with confidence now. Why wouldn't, we go to confidence? why wouldn't we go to God with confidence to begin with? Why? What, why do we need confidence to approach the throne of grace? And maybe you approach the throne of grace, but you don't, wa- you don't know why you approach the throne of grace with confidence. In our humanity, in our brokenness, in our betrayal, you should not approach the throne of grace with confidence. You should approach the throne of grace, well, if you ever approach the throne of grace in that condition, you should approach it with fear, with trembling, with dread, with condemnation, with an utter, with an utter, uh, with an utter tectonic sense of unworthiness. And without any expectation that you're going to get a thing, because of the level of betrayal, sin, and brokenness that you possess. But because Jesus... But you see the point? Because we have a high priest who took that into himself. Who experienced all of that suffering, all of that hurt, all of that betrayal. Experienced it all himself and yet didn't sin. And at the cross paid for it. Now you and I can approach the throne. (sighs) We can breathe. We don't have to be afraid. We can be... We can be confident that there's hopeful answer to this. We can be confident that he'll hear us, that he won't condemn us at the first sight of wrongdoing. That we that we won't be that we won't be he we won't we, we won't be overwhelmed by his wrath and his and his and his uh, judgment. But we can be confident, confident. He says, "What does he say? Approach the throne of grace with confidence, so that we might receive mercy." Mercy. We're not going to receive what we should receive. We're not going to receive what we thought we might receive. We can be confident we're going to get mercy, and we're going to get grace, and we're going to get favor, not condemnation. That's what the sympathetic Savior teaches us. That's the tectonic nature of the cross. Because most of us walk around feeling like failures. the other part of us walk around condemning us that we are failures. And those smug individuals are probably to be more pitied than the rest because they're blind. And yet in the moment while I'm feeling condemned and judged by those people, I, I have nothing but anger but I really should have pity. Pity that they would someday come to the place of realizing that, that, they are, that they have no standing in the presence of God short of Jesus. And that the only person who has standing in the presence of God himself is his son. perfect. And yet this person, this one person who has the who has the right, has earned the right to be smug, to be condescending, to be judgmental wasn't and isn't because of the cross. It's amazing the grace and then absorbs into himself all that he might otherwise have condemned, and says, I'll own it. I'll take it. I'll be it. I'll pay for it. And by the power of that transaction, by the power of that transaction, and not just take our sin, he, that would have been enough. Okay? I'll get you back to zero. I mean, great. Isn't that what, isn't that what uh, getting rid of your debt's all about? is that if the bank or the credit company says, okay, uh, we'll, we'll, we'll expunge that, or, you, or, the, or, the, or the hospital says, we'll, we'll just we'll write that off, and you don't have to pay that back. A minute. It's, that's wonderful, right? It's a, that's a grace. That's forgiveness. I'll just forgive it. That would have been enough for Jesus to just forgive our sin and go, okay, you're back to zero, and now do your best. He didn't do that. He went one better. He says, I'll forgive everything that's gone before and everything that might happen going forward, but I'm going to give you something, too. I'm going to take your debts and and wash those away. Debt, Debt previous, debt current, debt coming. And I'm going to give you something. I'm going to give you my righteousness. I'm going to put in your account a wealth of righteousness, a perfection, a beauty that is mine, and I'm going to give it to you in your account, and yet, and here's the, here's the glory of it. Here's the amazing nature of it. You can live as if it's yours. I'm going to take your stuff as if it's mine and be condemned by my Father because of it. That's what happened to the cross. And I'm going to set you free from all the shame and guilt that that provides from now, past, present, and future. But here's the, here's the beauty of the Gospel. Here's the beauty of the Gospel. Is I'm going to give you a righteousness. I'm going to get, put into your account a wealth of forgiveness and favor from my Father it's mine, and I earned it by my righteousness. I'm going to give it to you. And, it, and, and here's, the, here's the wonderful thing. You can walk around town like it's yours. You can act, un, and you can make deposits. You can make withdrawals. You can walk around head held high, confident. What's that what it says? Approach the throne of grace with God. You can walk around confidently, like your dad owns the place, And he gave you the wealth of his righteousness in your bank account. And you can pull out the credit card when necessary. Make a withdrawal on that grace if you need to. That was the nature of what that, of that scripture we said. Nobody wants to be making withdrawals from God's forgiveness. I'm not telling you, go do it on purpose. Go live like, go, go live your life, you know, like, live like hell, who cares, what, whatever you have to do. That's not what we're saying here. But what, what the gospel's saying is that there's enough that if you did that, there's, there's grace for it. Not that you would sin, but that if anybody does sin, there's grace from God to cover that sin. There's righteousness in your account, that still, you're still favorable, and there's still confidence, and that when you go to the throne, you're going to get mercy. You're going to get grace. You're going to get forgiveness. You're going to get a sense of sympathy in the process. That's the power of the gospel. That's the tectonic thing that happened at the cross. And you can believe that. The writer says, you're not going to make it. You're not going to make it. You're not going to keep on keeping on if if you're not regularly exposing yourself to the value of that, to the confidence of that. To the sympathy of a Savior who says, I get it. I get it. I get it, and I see you in it, and I want to hear you in it, and I want to heal you in it by the mercy and grace that's confidently available to you, for you at the throne of grace when you come through the great high priest, sympathizing Savior. That's the empowering nature. That's pray, Father, be with us. Help us to see the power of the cross in these ways. Change us Lord. the on, the only transformation that occurs, the only way we become better creatures. Is by discovering our frailties and weaknesses. And seeing that you've taken them into yourself. And that you give us your righteousness at the cross. And by faith, by grace through faith, we stumble forward. Help us to find that confidence in Christ. Help us to find that mercy and grace. Help us to find that sympathy. We are failures, Father. We are failures. But you make us your children. Let us live out of that account. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.